Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. You know what I like to do after a long, hard day of drinking? Listen to this podcast. It's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Beer is like sunshine for the belly. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Hello, and welcome back to Brewing After Hours. I'm your host, Sarah Flora. I'm really excited about today's topic because it's fascinated me for a while, basically because I live on the internet and I watch a lot of videos. So I think we've all seen videos of animals getting drunk on TikTok or YouTube or whatever, and there's a lot of articles written about it, if it's even possible. So I thought today we would dig into the science of it. So first, I've got some fun stories, of course. That's how I always like to start my podcast. But we're actually going to talk to a scientist about this. You'll hear from my amazing guest, Dr. Marika Yaniak, a molecular biologist and anthropologist who studies how animals digest their food. First, let's get into a little bit of the science about how fruit becomes fermented. Like early humans experienced, fermentation can happen spontaneously. If you haven't experienced this, I challenge you to leave a combination of ginger, sugar, and water open on your counter for a week. You can cover this with a cheesecloth, and I recommend it to keep fruit flies out. You will end up with ginger beer, and it's really delightful, honestly. It's great. Anything that has an abundance of sugar has the ability to ferment because there's wild yeast floating in the air all around us. One thing that fascinates me about alcohol is it's not just relegated to human beings. Depending on their metabolisms, other animals can get super drunk or drink the body weight equivalent of what would put a human in the hospital. It's all about metabolism, people. In my interview with Dr. Yaniak, we will dive into the science behind animals getting toasted, but for now, let's just enjoy some fun stories about crazy things that drunk animals have been up to. I may be alone in this sentiment, but I think raccoons are absolutely adorable. My husband and I always say that we want a band of raccoons to live in our house and just wash the dishes and mow the lawn and do people stuff because that would be hilarious. So raccoons are obviously known for getting into everything and just straight up eating trash. There's stories from Canada of raccoons getting into rotten crab apples, enough so that they stumble around people's yards and they have actually gotten the cops called on them. Probably because people are worried that they have rabies and they're behaving crazy, but no, just drunk. Another one of our scavenger friends who we frequently see at campgrounds is bears. So bears have been known to break into campgrounds and like straight up steal people's beer. There's a story about one such occasion in Washington state where a thirsty Teddy broke into a campground, drank 36 Mount Rainier lagers and one bush. Apparently, like most of us craft beer drinkers, he's not a huge fan of bush. 
It was obvious the next day that the bear had a hangover. He was found passed out on the ground, and when he woke up, he just relocated to a tree to take another nap. I think this is the bear equivalent of finding yourself on the couch in the morning after a long night of drinking, only to relocate to bed to try to sleep off the pounding headache. To relocate our sleepy friend, they had to lure him away with honey, donuts, and more beer. I guess he just needed some hair of the dog after that night. Birds are notorious for getting lit. They have a habit of overindulging in fermented fruit like our raccoon friends, but unfortunately the birds don't have a no flying while intoxicated rule. There's been reports of them crashing into windows and cars and altogether just flopping around. It got so bad in Canada that one animal health unit set up a bird drunk tank where they have to pass the bird equivalent of a sobriety test to be released once they sleep off their booze. In England, a bunch of seagulls got into some leftover alcohol on the beach or pilfered a local brewery, can't tell which, and they had to be rescued like many drunk humans before it. One of the seagulls puked on the firefighter trying to help it out. Again in England, a squirrel broke into the private Honeybourne Railway Club. The secretary of the club, Sam Butler, told BBC that he had found glasses tipped over, bottles smashed, and money scattered around the bar. After wondering who would do such a thing to the club, Bolter saw a woozy squirrel emerging from a bag of potato chips. He said, I've never seen a drunk squirrel before. He was sozzled and looked a little worse for wear, shall we say. He thinks the squirrel ran across the bar, accidentally turned on the tap, and enjoyed himself. It's unclear if the squirrel was indeed drunk, but it probably drank the beer thinking it was water. Though the squirrel caused about $370 in damages, he wasn't forced to pay his bar tab. Now that we know it's indeed possible for animals to get drunk and cause havoc, let's get into the science behind why it happens. I'm excited to introduce my special guest, Marika Yaniak, a molecular biologist and anthropologist who studies how primates, bats, and other mammals digest their foods. Dr. Yaniak has a PhD in evolutionary anthropology from Rutgers University. She was a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Calgary, and currently she's a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Salford and is the author of the article, Elephants get drunk because they can't metabolize alcohol like us, debunking the myth that it would be unlikely for elephants to eat enough fermented fruit to get drunk because they're so large. This article is published on the University of Calgary website. You can find a link to the article on my website, florabrewing.com, under the podcast section. Hi, Marika. Thanks for joining the show today. To start, I'd love to hear how you got into the field of studying the digestive habits of animals and what inspired your interest. Uh, that's a good question. went to grad school to be a primatologist and get my PhD in, in evolutionary anthropology. First few years of grad school, you kind of try to figure out what you want to focus on. I found this paper that was looking at uh, a digestive enzyme called amylase, specifically salivary amylase. And it's this enzyme that humans produce in their mouths, and it helps us digest starch. Pasta, bread, those all have starch in them. And salivary amylase helps break that down, starting in the mouth and then, you know, further down the gut. Uh, and the really cool thing about it is that it is not the same in all humans. So it varies depending on what kind of population you're from. I'm, I'm German. We eat lots of potatoes, lots of bread. Most Americans, I think, eat some starch. And a lot of different cultures have like their staple starch. 
And the interesting thing is that in populations that don't have the traditional starch and don't really consume any starch, in those other populations, we see that salivary amylase is expressed at much lower quantities than it is in populations that consume a lot of starch. There seems to be this uh, adaptation for whatever you were eating. You know, that really got me interested. And I was like, this is so cool, like seeing these patterns in humans today that, you know, kind of show us what the population has been doing for the past thousand years or so. So we can see these signatures of adaptation that basically just help us survive better in our environments and get the most nutrients out of whatever we're eating. Then started looking at similar kind of patterns in other primates. So I wasn't really specifically focusing on humans. I was more interested in how other primates vary because, you know, there's tons of different primates out there and they all eat different things. Some primates eat insects, others eat leaves, others eat fruit. So I wanted to know how they have adapted to eating these different things. So that's kind of how I, I got to the field of dietary adaptations and specifically digestive enzymes. That's awesome. I actually, amylase is something that we talk about in the brewing world because when you do your mash, uh, there is, that amylase does exist within your mash and that's what helps break down the starches for the beer. In that case, it's you know not an amylase produced by a human, but it's an amylase produced by the microbes that are present in the brewing process. I'm obviously fascinated by all these stories about animals eating fermented fruit, resulting in them becoming inebriated. So when I came across your story and research, I was super interested. Since fruit is usually a pretty um, necessary component of an animal's diet, I mean, obviously depends on which kind of animal and what is around them and everything. What is the probability of an animal stumbling upon a fermented fruit? Yeah, that's a good question. So, and it's actually, it's not as straightforward as you would think. First of all, yes, tons of animals will eat some fruit at least. And while there are animals that, you know, are focused more on meat or leaves, a lot of them will eat some fruit and especially primates love fruit. And it's, it's, a, it's a super great food resource, right? It's like super high in sugar. It's like easily digested, super available energy. We hadn't really considered how likely it would be to for an animal to come across fermented fruit until fairly recently. And there's actually very, very few studies that have tried to assess this in the wild. The number of studies out there that have actually measured ethanol content in fruits is really, really low. Like, you know, there's maybe a handful of studies, if that, and no one has done it on a, on a big scale. We actually don't really have a great idea of how common it is for wild fruit to contain ethanol. So together with my co-author and former boss, uh, Dr. Amanda Maline, we've actually started a, kind of a study trying to get at that and trying to just collect these data from all over the world. Uh, COVID has kind of gotten in the way of that, but you know, it's, it's getting started and we're hoping to really get into it once things get back to normal-ish and we can travel again. What we want to do is actually go to different places in the world. We have colleagues that have field sites in Africa, Madagascar, Costa Rica, and Indonesia, and just collect just fruit in the forest and test how much ethanol is in these fruits while they're still on the tree and when they fall into the ground. 
does it vary? Like, just what's the range of ethanol that we see? I can tell you some of the earlier studies that have done this on a much smaller scale. They have found that, you know, something like 3%, even up to 8% ethanol in a piece of fruit, which obviously 8% is like high range, you know, that's something you don't necessarily see all the time. Um, but, you know, it's, it seems that from this preliminary evidence and some of these earlier studies that it's not uncommon for fruit to actually have a lot of ethanol in it. Well, we don't know for sure how often animals encounter these. We kind of think based on this that it might be more common than people have initially assumed. And it's not just fruit, you know, it's like nectars too. <laughs> like there's these, these palm trees in Madagascar that have nectar in them and that nectar just from like personal observations from colleagues, like they say when they, you go up to it and smell it, it smells like alcohol, like you can actually smell it. So if you can smell it, an animal that has a much better nose than us could probably definitely detect that too. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't tell you exactly like how often animals encounter them, but you know, they definitely do at some point in most habitats, I think. I'm surprised the percentages you're finding, that's just mind blowing to me. That's like beer level. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's like an IPA, right? <laughs> yeah. We're trying hard to hit those numbers and then it's just happening in the wild. <laughs> right. And I mean, at 8%, that might be a bit of an outlier and not something that's like regularly encountered, but even 3% is like a decent number. That's what, like a, a cider or something will have like 3%. Yeah. Like a commercial lager situation. I love it. How do you test for the alcohol? There's different ways of doing it. The way that we've devised actually uses a modified breathalyzer. It's much more portable and easier to do in the field than using like a mass spectrometer, spectrometer or something. Yeah, it's, it's just an, a breathalyzer that you basically attach a bag to and then you let the fruit kind of sit in the bag and you know fill up the uh, compartments and then you can you can basically pull in uh, air from the bag into the breathalyzer and then it's basically just like a human blowing into it and we can kind of like get a reading that way that's really cool a really inventive way to do field work yeah so that they should credit uh, matt kerrigan with this he is one of our colleagues who worked with us on this. And yeah, he's a really creative person, a really creative scientist. So he came up with this. <laughs> Here's something you don't know about me. I don't relax well. With my crazy life, it's just hard for me to shut off my brain and chill. I overthink, I get easily stressed out, and it effing sucks. So I did my homework and found Sunday Scaries which are delicious and vitamin-boosted CBD gummies. They've become a must-have in my daily routine, and they chill me out in just about 20 minutes. Basically, they help me take the edge off so I can maintain my composure and live scare-free. And there's no risk to buy. The company offers a 100% lifetime money-back guarantee. If the product's not for you, that's okay. You'll get your money back. Sunday Scaries is in the stress-relieving business, not the stress-causing business. I got you 25% off to prove it. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code BELIEVE for your discount. That's promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. They're effing amazing and you won't regret joining their squad. Do animals seek out alcohol or do they consume it by accident? 
It's really hard to say whether some an animal does something on purpose or whether we're just attributing kind of our our own views onto it. There have been some studies that have looked at um, or have presented animals with different options and then seen if they go for something that has higher alcohol content, for example. So um, there was a study uh, a few years ago now that looked at eyes, and eyes are a primate from Madagascar. They're a little bit weird looking, but I, I love them. I think they're really cool. If you haven't seen them before, you should definitely look them up. They have these really massive ears and they're nocturnal. So in this study, they presented captive eyes with different solutions. And one was just straight sugar because, you know, the argument is, are they actually going for the alcohol or are they going for the sugar? Because both of those things they might be going for. So to test this, they presented um, a sugar solution that was just straight sugar and then a series of other solutions that had the same amount of sugar, but then added uh, different amounts of ethanol in them. And at least based on this study, the IAs seem to go, like they seem to prefer the higher ethanol solutions. They were going like straight for the strongest ones over just the sugar ones. So that suggests that they had some kind of preference for the high ethanol solutions. Can't really infer that that's because they're trying to get drunk. Obviously, it would be very clear that we have no evidence for that. We just know that there's something about the ethanol that they're seeking out. And it might just be that there's calories in it and they're going for those calories. Maybe they like the taste of it. Like, I don't know. Um, and maybe they like the feeling of being inebriated. But for that, like, we really don't have any evidence. You know, the most parsimonious explanation would be that there's some kind of caloric benefit to that ethanol. Yeah, I always think of dogs knocking over beer bottles to drink it. It's funny because some dogs definitely like it and some are not about it at all. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if there's something about their like taste receptors, if they vary across different breeds or something, if it's just too bitter for them. Yeah, my husband had some dogs that he, he swore they only liked craft beer too. They wouldn't drink like commercial lagers. Of expensive taste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's this island in the Caribbean called St. Kitts that has a population of vervet monkeys on it. And they're not native to the island. They are introduced by humans. These are primates that are originally from Africa, but they were brought over by humans. And now there's a, a kind of wild free roaming populations population of these monkeys on St. Kitts. And there's old BBC footage of them um, going after people's drinks on the beach. Like if people leave their drink unattended, like their pina colada or something, like you can just see the monkeys going straight for it. And in the clip, they also show them kind of like rolling around and acting a little drunk. But, you know, with TV shows, it's always hard to tell if that was real or if they just kind of took something out of context. And they might just, again, be going for the sugar because, you know, those drinks have tons of sugar in them. Do you use the same kind of testing? And I'm thinking like the blood test you might get for a DUI um, for animals as you do humans to determine if A, how much alcohol is in their blood. And then how would you know if they were quote unquote drunk? Yeah, it would basically be the same thing. To get uh, a blood draw from an animal is a lot trickier than from a human, right? Because, you know, with studies that do invasive things like that, you always need special permissions. And you can't do them 
in the wild generally. You often just can't measure it directly or you have to use some kind of proxy. There have been some captive studies that have actually then done that. So if you have a captive animal that you're doing other tests on, you know, it's easier to then get a little blood draw and, and measure that. So let's say they have a really high blood alcohol content that doesn't necessarily mean that they experience that the same way that a human does. And even humans, right? Like one human could uh, experience a certain level of blood alcohol much more, much differently from another human, depending on like how often you drink, for example. Um, yeah, so it's hard to tell, you know, like if, you know, if you measure a bat that has a certain blood alcohol content, you know, and do you think, okay, based on a human, like that sh bat should experience some kind of inebriation, but obviously we don't know that. So you have to, you could t do tests like similar to like a sobriety test in humans where you make them walk like a maze or do something like that. There are been studies that try to assess this. So there's an old study from the 80s on elephants where they fed elephants ethanol, just like gave them like a trough of diluted ethanol. I don't remember what percentage it was. Um, and then took notes on the elephant's behavior and compared it to before they consumed it and after. And according to the note, they claim that there was a behavioral change. Like the elephants became more aggressive. They were swaying and, you know, flapping their ears a lot more. So, you know, maybe there's something to it. I mean, the, the stories of animals acting inebriated are, you know, out there. There's tons of them. Like if you just, people love these stories. So, you know, whenever there's some kind of example of this happening, it always ends up in the newspaper. You know, there's like elk in Sweden that every fall will eat apples that have fallen from the trees and, you know, act drunk or get stuck in the tree. <laughs> you know? So when I was, when this paper came out, our paper on ethanol metabolism, I was talking to a reporter in Edmonton in Canada, and he said that every fall he has deer that come to get his crab apples from the tree. And he also thinks that they're acting drunk. <laughs> so funny. I mean, there's endless videos online. When I first had the idea of doing this episode, I was just like fully immersed in all of the, the like compounded videos of just like animals being ridiculous and acting drunk. And it's just, it's hilarious. Speaking about elephants, you did a study about elephants digesting fermented fruits. And so the myth is that elephants can't get intoxicated from eating fermented fruit because they're too large. Uh, can you tell us about your findings in that study? Sure. That was a study that I did when I was a postdoc at the University of Calgary. And um, I did it with my advisor then, Amanda Maline, who I've mentioned, and an undergrad, actually she's a master student, sorry, uh, Svelin Pinto, and our uh, colleague and friend, Matt Kerrigan, who I also mentioned earlier, and he was visiting Calgary in the summer to help us set up some lab work. This was two summers ago, not pandemic summer. This was back in the day when we could still have drinks together. And we were having drinks together one day. And we, th we were, you know, the story came up and we started thinking about it. And, um, you know, we were like, we should look into this a little bit more. So we kind of hatched this plan to look at elephants and their ethanol metabolism. And specifically, kind of the question we had was that, you know, are these stories about elephants either becoming drunk or not being able to because they're too large? Like, what is there to this? Because a little bit of background 
for this paper that came out in 2006 that, you know, suggested that it was a myth that elephants could get drunk because they're just too large, it wouldn't be possible. For their calculations, they used human ethanol metabolism at the speed at which we digest or break down ethanol as, as a proxy. So they just basically scaled up for an elephant's body size from that. But humans are special, special adaptations for digesting ethanol, actually. So this was something that Mac Kerrigan had worked on before, and he had found that uh, humans, along with uh, other African great apes, so this is bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, we have a change in our ADH4 um, enzyme, which is the alcohol dehydrogenase protein 4. And we have a change in that that evolved in the common ancestor with the other African great apes. So around 10 million years ago, that's basically um, just makes this enzyme so much more efficient like 40 times more efficient. We think that based on this change, humans are actually much better at metabolizing ethanol and might actually have you know, a higher, higher tolerance, so to say. Um, there's other parts to this, right? It's a, I'm simplifying things a little bit because ethanol metabolism is actually quite complex and there's a lot of steps involved. At least based on this one step, it suggests that humans at the very least are different from other mammals. Basically, when you're calculating an elephant's ethanol metabolism ability and you only scale up for body size using humans as a baseline, there's, you know, there's a bit of a problem there because what if elephants don't have the same mutation that we do? Their ethanol metabolism is going to be totally different from ours. And no one had looked at this. Our first question was, okay, who else might have this mutation that humans and other great apes have? Because presumably this mutation arose to allow us to eat possibly fermenting fruits more easily without feeling the negative effects from it so much. At least that's kind of the idea. We started, we first looked at elephants and, but also a lot of other mammals because we just kind of wanted to get an idea of what's out there. Like what is the variation out there? There's so many other mammals that might come in contact with fermented fruits especially we're curious about some of the really forgivorous animals like fruit bats. You know, not only do they eat kinds of fruit and nectar, they fly. <laughs> like, you know, you don't, you don't want to be inebriated when you're flying. <laughs> so yeah, we compiled a data set of, um, I think it was close to, don't remember the exact number now, actually. It was like 70 or 80 mammals just uh, based on their genes. So we just looked at published genomes. We no no animals were harmed or even touched with this. Yeah, we looked at the ADH4 um, enzyme and the gene that codes for it confusingly is called ADH7. Uh, but ADH4 is the, the resulting protein. So we looked at the gene that codes for this and just looked across the sequence, you know, do any other animals or any other mammals have the same change that humans do that makes us so much more efficient at ethanol metabolization? We found a similar change in... IIs, for example, that primate that I mentioned earlier, and they're known to, to feed on nectar, fermenting nectar in the wild, that also in some of the fruit bats. So in some of the fruit bats, we found either the same change or similar change at the same location. So that should suggest that, you know, in fruit bats, there might be something similar going on. Elephants didn't have this change. And not only did elephants not have this change, but they actually had something in their ADH4 uh, in an ADH7 sequence that codes for ADH4 that makes it completely non-functional. 
So it's called a premature stop codon, which basically just means that there is an interruption in the gene sequence that causes it to not express a functional protein. It's basically like it's broken. So the, the gene is broken, which means that elephants most likely don't actually even have a functional ADH4 enzyme. Hope you're seeing where I'm getting that, you know, elephants and humans, like you can't compare their ethanol metabolism. It's completely different. And we don't know, of course, that elephants don't have some kind of other way of metabolizing ethanol that we don't have. You know, that's possible. Certainly there's other steps involved in the process, but I think it's, you know, very fair to say that you can't just use the human ethanol metabolism as a proxy for elephants and scale up for body size. If we look at it that way, then that paper that had refuted the claims of elephants being able to get drunk from fermenting fruit, I think was premature. And, you know, at the very least, we can't rule the possibility out. Yeah. So if they have, if they, if they have that stop on the ability to basically metabolize alcohol, would that just mean that the alcohol just kind of floats around in their blood and potentially could just get them drunk if they can't digest it in any way? I mean, that's kind of the idea, right? Because if it builds up and builds up and builds up, again, there are many steps to ethanol metabolism that I'm glossing over here, but you know, it is a possibility and it certainly warrants further exploration of what other, uh, well, what the other parts of their ethanol metabolism look like, right? Like what are the other proteins and enzymes doing that are part of that process? But also, you know, you could test it directly if you, if you happen to get, you know, an elephant who had been consuming fermented fruits, um, you could, you could try to get a blood draw from them and kind of see, obviously it's tricky <laughs> an elephant. You can't just draw blood from them that easily. The myth that they can't get drunk might not be true after all. And, you know, the old stories of elephants getting drunk on marula fruits might actually might be true. And, you know, it's a certainly a widespread story. I don't know if you've ever had a marula. It's a liqueur. It's like a creamy liqueur, kind of like Bailey's, but it's made from marula fruits, which grow in, in South Africa. And elephants are, are known for seeking this marula fruit out. And it's like, it's such a widespread story. And it's so well known that that company, Amarula, that makes that liqueur has built the entire ad campaign around elephants, and around how much elephants love this fruit and how they seek it out, especially when it's like super ripe and has probably started to ferment. Good ad campaign, honestly. So you're currently doing research in England. Uh, what studies are you working on now that you're able to share with us? Uh, I feel like I have way too many things going on. <laughs> it's like, there's so many different things, but like kind of the stuff I'm working on that's related to this. Okay, I should step back and kind of tell you a little bit about what I'm doing at the moment. I am a postdoc at the University of Salford now in slash near Manchester. I'm new here, so I don't get all the intricate details, but apparently people from Salford get really upset if you say that the University of Salford is in Manchester, even though it, you know, it really is like right there. <laughs> but I started postdoc here. We have a really cool new data set for, of whole genomes from 200 different um, primates. And these are all primates that are found in Central and South America. So it's, it's kind of like a specific radiation of primates. But the reason that they're so interesting is that they all descend from kind of a common ancestor that came over to the Americas. 
And then they just diversified. So over 25 million years, they just like rapidly, that's rapid, that's rapid in evolutionary terms. They just rapidly diversified to fill all these different uh, niches, right? So they feed on different things. They, they look different. They act different because they're so varied in what they eat. You know, some of them eat insects, some of them eat leaves. So what we're interested in is like, what are the signatures across their genome that kind of help us understand how they're digesting these different things? Because they must have adapted to being able to eat these different things, right? So that's one thing. Like we're also looking at their olfactory receptors. So is what they smell different, right? Like do they have different repertoires for what they can actually sense? And taste receptors also fall into this. So how do they actually, you know, do they experience things differently when they when they eat them? Like there's variation in taste receptors even in humans and chimpanzees that people have found that um, make your uh, ability to taste bitterness different. So that's actually like some people find beer just like really unpalatable and it probably has something to do with their bitter taste receptors and it's like how many of them they have or, you know, they have different uh, alleles in them that make them work slightly differently. I don't know if you've come across this, but some people are just, they can't drink beer because it's just too, they say it's too bitter an acquired taste, right? Like I'm sure we all, when the very first time we had beer, we're like, oh, it's gross. <laughs> but then you, you grow up and have more of it and you start to like it. But some people, they must experience that bitter taste differently. So that's, you know, a long story to say that we're looking at bitter taste receptors in, in these primates to see how they differ and whether there's any correlation between what they feed on and how they then experience that taste. So those are kind of the things that I'm working on that are I also have other projects as part of the postdoc where we're looking at, you know, trying to figure out how many different species of primates we even have in the Americas, because so many of these animals, you know, they might look similar, but if they're, they might not actually be able to interbreed, even if they look really similar. And there's a lot of interesting things happening in, especially the Amazon, where the rivers are so wide that they actually form this barrier. So you can have different primates on opposite sides of the river that have been separated for millions of years. Even though you can just take a boat over and see both of them, they seem to be like right next to each other and they look alike. You know, they haven't actually interacted in like 2.5 million years and are actually kind of evolving to be a little bit different. So that's the kind of stuff we're looking at now. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was so interesting. I'm so happy we got to have you on and I can't wait to see the results of all the studies you're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll be a while. Science takes a while. <laughs> Always longer than you think it will. But yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. we've been talking about drunk animals and how they get drunk off fermented fruit because, you know, that's what's available unless they're breaking into campgrounds. Well, I did a collaboration with Conscious Ales and we actually kind of did something along the lines of what the animals would be drinking. I made my base Saison recipe that I use for my cherry Saison, but I left out the cherries. And then Chris from Conscious Ales picked it up, inoculated it with his house culture Seriously, this is named Casa Flora, which is why we had to do this collaboration. It was just kind of kismet. 
And then after four months, added 10 pounds of Bing cherries, let it sit for another four months, and then bottle conditioned it for five months. Yes, this was way more controlled than what animals would be drinking, but it is still fermented fruit. So let's give it a try. And this is definitely a sour beer. The color is like a beautiful maroon-ish red, very jewel tone red. I love it, it's beautiful. There's very little head. The carbonation is very reminiscent of other sour beers. I always notice that when I have a inoculated beer, the carbonation is significantly different than say if you were to bottle condition with your typical yeast. It's much more like soap bubbly and it's, it's like a spicier bubble. That's the only way I can really describe it. It smells super tart, like warhead tart. It smells like it's gonna punch me in the face with sourness. I pick up like a little apricot, but I think that's just the stone fruit coming through from the cherries. And if you think about it, Bing cherries are a little on the tartar side versus like a dark red cherry would be. So I think that tartness is actually just coming through and enhancing the tartness of the beer. Let's taste it. What first occurs to me is that there's a woodiness or earthiness in this beer. It's hitting me on the middle of my tongue and it honestly tastes like when you're digging in dry earth and it reminds me of gardening, but I've just been doing a ton of gardening lately. And this actually kind of goes along with the flavors that our animal friends might have been experiencing rummaging around in the dirt to get some uh, fermented fruit. The tartness isn't overpowering. It's more staying on the middle of my tongue. You know, it's not hurting my jaw in any way. And honestly, the flavor is kind of like a slightly unripe Bing cherry, which I really appreciate. Cherries are truly my favorite fruit. I have them tattooed on me because I love them so much. You know, I really am impressed and surprised and honestly kind of blown away about the earthiness of this beer. I truly expected just something like bright and fruity, but there's a level of depth in this that is quite remarkable. And I just can't wait to see how it still progresses over time. I'm probably gonna save and cellar some of these and try them in another year and see how they turn out. Thanks for listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandsband on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. 
Now I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.